Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. As previously promised, I want to bring you more young doctors to share their stories of how they got started in practice. Today, my guests are Dr. Holden Lynn and Dr. Brennan Kelly. I first met Holden when he was the president of Life University's Gonstead Club. He was just finishing up when I was getting started there. I later met his cousin, Brennan, who's one of our newest Gonstead diplomates. Together, they have the only 100% Gonstead office in the state of Louisiana. Today, they're going to share with us how they got started and the challenges they faced regarding patient communication. So without any further ado, Dr. Brennan Kelly and Dr. Holden Lynn. Hi guys, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Very excited. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you bet. So we're going to talk a little bit about, um, well, we'll talk about a few things, but we're mostly going to talk a lot about the whole process of patient education from a, a kind of a newer perspective. When I came back to my hometown to practice, I came to a town where nobody knew what Gonstead was, and I, it was my job to educate them. Well, you guys did one better than me. You moved to a state where nobody knew what Gonstead was. And so when you first came back, what I guess what I first want to know is, at what point in time did you guys decide you were going to be the ones to bring Gonstead to Louisiana? And how did that vision form? And how did you know it was going to be Gonstead? And probably more importantly, whose idea was it? Okay, that's actually a good story. Uh, Holden, you want to tell that one, or is that for me? No, I think you got it. You, you started it, so go ahead. Holden and I thought it was a total pipe dream to become chiropractors and then both successfully get through school and then open up a practice together in our hometown. But so, I, I mean, it was sort of joked about. I mean, we're talking, what, 2008? seven, eight. I mean, we were, I was in high school. You, It was, we were young oh, and we're just a year and a half apart from each other. We grew up next door. We're cousins, but I mean, more like siblings than anything. Um, so we, I was, I was at life. And so my 14th quarter was his first quarter. So we basically traded places at, at, in Atlanta. And uh, I had pretty much studied Gonstead the whole time I was in Atlanta I mean, I, I, of course, did my due diligence to check out several other techniques and even learn them and use them in, uh, like in the outpatient clinic and things like that. But it was, it was always understood that we would be, you know, strict Gonstead practitioners. Well, when, you know, when the, when the rubber met the road and I had to sort of be the pioneer to get the idea for the practice rolling and what we were going to do, I realized how much I didn't know. Uh, so I started looking for other ways to uh, learn how to open a, a practice um, and do it successfully. So I was looking for mentorship. I was looking for anything. I, I joined Amped because uh, I actually had an agreement with two other docs who I graduated with. We were going to open up a three doc practice. Um, and then, you know, once Holden got through school, we'd figure out how to integrate him later. Well, the other two docs were not Gonstead docs. So there was a whole mixture of from torque release to Thompson to upper cer- knee chest, upper cervical. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of training from the other guys, uh, uh, big DE guys. And, and so as a principal practice, and I think that's what the, the foundation was built upon, that it'd be a principal 
uh, philosophically based, subluxation based chiropractic practice, but there'd sort of be this medley of all, all sorts of different specialty. And I, so I definitely lost my way. And the reason this, this story is funny to me is because I remember, I'll never forget the night that we were in our townhouse in, in Smyrna, which is right outside of Mar- Marietta. Uh, Holden was, had just moved in and, and my wife, my fiance at the time was, we were living there and uh, they were both like, dude, you can't go through with this. Like you can't do like, this is not, no, the, the goal, this is my wife saying this. The goal was Gonstead only <laughs> Lauren, you know, telling me it was Gonstead only pediatrics, pregnant moms, families, like that's what this is about. And it was, it, it should be you and Holden. And this other thing is just not going to, not going to work. Well, you could imagine the, the terror in my, in my in my spirit when I realized that I had to break away from the safety net of having partners. So if that we fail, at least all three of us fail together and it's not as big of a financial commitment to, okay, I got to go in alone for three years and then Holden's going to jump in and hopefully uh, I I didn't die before he gets there, you know, type of thing. So that's how we decided it. Of course, Holden in, uh, Holden won the spine model his first quarter at Gonstead Clubs week two. So we knew he'd eventually be the president of the Gonstead Club at life. And then the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> yeah, Lauren was definitely very principled. Um, she always was, still is today. Not a chiropractor. Not a chiropractor. Very principled. It's principled. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so then once you got there, obviously you're moving into it city where nobody really knows what Gonstead is. How did you, and I know that that's part of the, um, that's part of the comfort of having other people is you're like, I'm not the only fool making a fool out of himself. And now you are the only fool making a fool out of himself. You got to go tell everybody that, Oh yeah, everything you think you know is wrong. I'm the one who knows what chiropractic is, which is a lot of fun to be in that position. Um, so how did you go about doing that? Um, and kind of educating people on what you do and why you're different and why that might be a good thing. Yeah, so we built our, we built our practice on lunch and learns, health talks. So just business to business, coming in, providing lunch, and uh, educating them on what we do. I don't know if the I don't know where this got put in my head, but there were several teachers in school that put the idea in my head that patients do not care what your technique is. So if you think that you're going to get out of here and say, oh, I do this technique and you're going to make a you're going to you're going to have a successful practice, out of, you know, day one out of the gates, then you're sorely mistaken. You know, all they all patients really care about is, you know, can you help me? How long is it going to take and how much does it cost? So if you can figure out how to communicate that to people, then you'll probably be successful. So the thought that I had coming out was I'm not going to bore these people with all the technical stuff that I went to the effort to study, like the Gunstead work. And, but it was more about just keeping it simple. I used the Reggie gold chemistry of life, the letter N thing. I mean, there was a few different health talks that I sort of kept in my back pocket, depending on the crowd, but you do that a couple hundred times and eventually you got enough patients in your office to, you know, pay the bills and a little extra. Um, it wasn't until later in the advent of all this social media attention that Gonstead started getting that now you see people who in our city who absolutely do not do Gonstead and they're advertising it on their website as if they do. I got, and Michelle from GCS is calling me like, hey, who's this guy? And 
what should I put him in the database? And I'm like, I have no clue who this guy is. I'm not, no, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it wasn't until later that we realized, dude, we should have been talking about Gonstead the whole time from the beginning. It's such a, it's such a selling point. You know what I mean? It's not just a technical uh, superiority, but it's a, it's, it's a selling point. People like that idea and you don't have to get super technical about it, but you explain the difference. You explain how, you know, a, a rotational manipulation is not going to correct anything. It makes a bunch of noise and gets a bunch of views on TikTok and Snapchat, but it's not actually taking this, this bone and lifting it and setting it onto the disc. You're missing the entire, you know, 90% of that correction there. And when, when I told people that it seemed like it resonated a bit more. And then we were able to start kind of like building our brand around Gonstead um, rather than just chiropractic. Yeah, we kept it very just simple chiropractic in the beginning. Lucky for us, there's there's not a lot of docs around here who just do chiropractic. So we sort of focused on the fact that we were simple, principled, and not focusing on the technique so much. But later, we kind of moved into talking about the technique and its differences. I was saying, though, I remember in the earlier stages when, when Brennan first got started, uh, you know, he had just had his business cards made and, and um, I was back in from school and I was shadowing him and, and you know, just following the business. And uh, I took one of his business cards and one of our friends, his father is a doctor, uh, a chiropractor. And I remember um, running into him somewhere and I gave him one of Brennan's business cards just to say, hey, look, we're, we're doing what we said we were going to do. And he looked at it and it, 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 it read, uh, Brennan Kelly, DC, Gonstead chiropractor. And he looked at it and he laughed and he was like, yeah, you're not going to be keeping that Gonstead chiropractor on there for much longer. Nobody cares. And we just, we, we didn't know what to think at that moment because it meant so much to both of us that we were different. We were our own niche in a way, just because what everyone else was doing, we were not doing that, you know, and we wanted to bring a different aspect of what chiropractic truly was to Louisiana and more specifically the Lafayette and surrounding areas. Yeah. It's funny how I heard the same thing even before that. Um, that nobody cared, nobody cared. And maybe that's true with most techniques, but even now we have people seeking us out. It seems like there's a number of patients who have been injured by another chiropractor and their symptoms actually got worse. And now they go to social media and now they're seeking out a Gonstead doctor because they've either seen what Dr. Ian could do or they've seen somebody else's Instagram or TikTok or whatever. And there's enough people doing it now that they've seen enough that they go, well, these guys seem to be able to help. If anybody can help, they can. And so then we explain why what the last chiropractor did didn't help them, but why what we're going to do does. And then the most important part, when you actually deliver, they're sold for life. And they're going to send everybody they know. And it's like, it's so easy. So it's funny how that, that happens. <laughs> that, and so then when people tell you, oh, you don't need that on there, it doesn't matter. Well, it does. <laughs> it matters. <laughs> yeah, we went to a, I was still in school at the time. I think I must have been like in my third year or something. And uh, I got in, I was home for a break and I got invited to uh, Times of Times Best of Acadiana. It's a, a local newspaper does the best, you know, every, every city has this sort of thing, but it was the awards ceremony and the banquet. And I saw my old boss there. I used to work, I was a CA for a chiropractor here while I was an undergrad just to gain experience. And 
he's great, but his associate who's a, I don't know, man, he just shares opinions that are just outrageous at the most inopportune times. I, I don't appreciate many of his opinions. And he was asking me how things were going and making small talk when I ran into him. And you know, I told him, yeah, I'm, I'm studying Gunstead. I'm pretty excited about that. I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but he goes, Oh, Gunstead. What that's the, uh, what's that? That's like the sympathetic parasympathetic thing. I was like, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a lot. I mean, it goes a bit deeper than that, but basically, sure. And and I didn't want to get into it. And and he was like, uh, uh, yeah, wh- wh- why are you doing that? I was like, well, you know, I just think that being specific with your adjustments just creates such a better result. Um, and to me, it's more scientific because you limit variables. You kind of know if you're on the right track or not. Um, and he was like, oh, I used to be specific when I was in school. This is what he said. I used to be specific. I learned a couple of techniques. Two years in practice, you'll never be specific again. It's, it's a waste of time. I was like, oh, well, thanks for your opinion, but we'll, we'll have to see. I'm pretty sure I'm going to remain this way, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that somebody would have the audacity to tell you something like that, you know? Yeah. And I find the more I'm obsessed with the idea that the way I can get better is to be more specific. It certainly isn't become more generalized. <laughs> that won't help anyone. So yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, so you were talking, you were saying how you're kind of unique because you don't have, um, you don't have anything else in the office. So I'm guessing that you probably have some people around you doing PTs kind of stuff and that other kind of stuff that goes on. And of course, we even have people who say they're, they're doing Gonstead who add that stuff in. And that's fine. Everything. But um, I know, I know Holden for at, at life because our, our time just barely overlapped little bit um but i know that life really isn't that big in the pt they teach what you got to teach to get through boards but they're not really trying to teach you to be a physical therapist so right. coming out and coming into practice did you ever have to kind of deal with patients who thought well the question the way i get it phrased is what exercises can i do to make this better <laughs> did you have to deal with that Definitely. always and yeah i still deal with that i used to get more upset by those remarks or those questions, but I've learned to just sort of take it in stride and not really think too deep into it. Of course, you know, between us, I would prefer that we just don't even go into that, that arena. But I, I, I do believe that like, if the patient feels like you're addressing it from multiple angles that you have their best interest in mind, I, I throw out general recommendations and most of it is just something that I can spout off in 15 or 20 seconds. I used to spend way too long explaining this stuff. And I realized that that was not uh, conducive to running an efficient practice. Um, So I've always tried to find ways to streamline that information, um, whether it's handouts or I actually had a video library on Google Drive that I would just, I'd make a quick note, oh, share it with this patient. And then after the the shift, I'd go to my Google Drive and I'd have their email address on, on file. And so I'd share it with them. So I have people who have access to like videos of me explaining how to do a wall angel or explaining how to hold a plank properly or, you know, things like that. Um, I don't really spend as much time doing that anymore. I've tried to create relationships with other professionals like physical therapists, massage therapists, et cetera, um, to refer to if I feel like it's a question that's beyond uh, just a really general, easy solution like, you need to set a goal to be able to hold a push-up position for 60 seconds. Talk to me, come back and talk to me once you got that down, you know, like for a spondy or a hyperlordosis or something. But if it's something like really specific that I feel like, oh man, this lady has been struggling with this coccyx pain and, 
you know, I've checked the ASIN, I've even checked the coccyx, no trauma, sacrum readjusted, just not getting the results that I want. I, I know a pelvic floor therapist I can send to, and they'll ask them all the questions that I don't know the answers to, and um, I don't even feel like trying to answer in the first place. Yeah. I think every now and then see um, <clears throat> whether or not a patient is actually holding their adjustment as, as well as we'd like them to, or as long as we'd like them to, um, you know, if you feel like you're getting a good set, I, I do think, a, a, a strong core will help assist that patient hold adjustments longer and longer. Um, so although we don't go into the details of, you know, what exercises to do or how to do them, we do give recommendations as to, um, how you can help yourself hold adjustments a little bit longer. Yeah, I think that's a good Johnson approach. That's the one I learned many years ago, and that's how most of them work. We can give you little tips, but we don't really do that. Can I add to that, actually, real quick? There's, there's been a couple of situations recently where I felt really confident about what we were addressing from the, from the adjusting uh, perspective that it really just needed a few visits to to prove that we were that we were making the correction. So like somebody would say, oh, the exercise thing. What should I be doing? Whatever. These are usually like really motivated people, right? Like people who want to get better, like good patients, right? So I, I I'm not offended by that question. I just take it as a they are taking responsibility for their health. I can appreciate that. They want to do anything and everything possible to help themselves. And so I'll just say, well, you know what? Um, I really think that we're on to something here. I don't want you to do too many new things at once. Let's let your body take one thing at a time and watch how it changes. I really think that that fifth lumbar adjustment is going to make a huge difference. You know, once we're four or five visits down the road, depending on where you're at, well, I may make a, a recommendation about that, but let's hold off. And there's a few times where we made a full, a full correction and we saw great results with it. And now the patient is saying, oh, the, the adjustment fixed me not the planks or whatever. So I've, I've tried to strategically withhold giving recommendations with that explanation as well. That's what I do. I tell them, let me get it fixed first, and then I can show you some exercises to help stabilize it, to help protect it for that exact reason. But also because I don't want them doing sit-ups or crunches when they've got a fifth lumbar that's posterior inferior. It's not productive yeah. to what we're trying to do. So I'm right. like, no, I don't do any exercises. Leave it alone, and we'll fix it, and then we'll go after there. Um, oh, so Holden, when you went, well, you first went out there for peak, but um, Brennan had already been in practice at least two years, probably pushing three. Were you worried at all that he had this huge head start? He had these patients, but there might not be anybody left for you. Was that a concern at all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I also, in Louisiana, you can't peak at an office in Louisiana. So um, that's oh. not allowed. So I actually had to do my peak elsewhere. Um, oh, okay. Uh, oh, okay. oh, that, I forgot. You're right. I forgot about that. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, that's, I wouldn't say that was a huge concern, but it's definitely an idea that that kind of stays in the back of your head until you actually see what the population is like in that area where we decided to open up. Um, I, I, I was honestly more concerned with uh, my ability, especially in like cervical chair to actually get these people better as quickly as I'd like them to. Um, 
I think that was honestly the main concern of mine. I knew there were people that wanted what we had. We just had to educate them as to what it was and how it was different. Yeah, there's always the concern if there's two or more people in the office that if you're not up to par with them, your patients are all going to kind of find their way to them. So you're like, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be at least as good as you is kind of the trick. Right. Well, and, and I, I've been adjusted by Brennan since I started this chiropractic journey. So I knew his skills and, and the level that they were at. Uh, and so that was a little intimidating, but it was also refreshing to know that uh, this guy started in the same spot that we are all, we all start in, you know, his skills had to be refined over the years. And it was someone who I could go to when I was having trouble with things. Um, so I, I think there were, and I know there were definitely more pros than, than cons to stepping into something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So one of the questions I get a lot, and I know this is the thing that worries people a lot is the whole idea of opening your own office because you take on a lot of debt and write a lot of checks before you get your first patient. So that whole process um, with finding your space, what kind of thought process did you have? Like, were you thinking we're going to kill it? Let's get a giant <laughs> gigantic unit. Or were you thinking let's be conservative or just let's just try to be reasonable and hope for the best, but not be too, too optimistic. How, what was your thinking with that? It, it's a hybrid for sure. The start, the starting off, we're in our second office right now, but the starter office was a hybrid between humble beginnings and let's get a few bells and whistles because it's going to help me with my sales pitch when my adjusting skills still suck, <laughs> you know? So like there was a lot more talking and a lot less adjusting in the beginning and now I would say there's a lot less talk and a lot more clunk, if you know what I mean. So yeah. in the beginning, it was like, uh, so I trained through the Jumpstart program with Amped. And that's really where I, between that and my peak experience, because I, I peaked in a couple different locations, uh, in Georgia, one in Georgia, uh, who's not Gonstead but was an amped doc who was seeing a little over 300 visits a week. And I really got to get my hands dirty and adjust a lot. Um, but then I, I also peaked in Ohio with the Schwanzes, uh, with John Schwanz and Tyler Schwanz because they're affiliated with the AMP program. Honestly, that I, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I knew that there was at least enough of a template for me to use in order to find a space, negotiate a lease. There were power partners that I could use as a part of that organization where they would kind of help you find what would work. And they've already worked with other offices that have successfully opened so that this is not uncharted territory for them. They know what kind of what you're looking for and how to set you up. So I leaned into those resources and delegated a lot of the things that I didn't know how to do um, in order to just get the foundation laid so that we could find a place, get a lease um, and get open. Um, Fortunately, there wasn't much of a build that I was very attracted by the space that we found because it was a, a family practice prior to me moving in. So it was kind of already like broken up into rooms. And I mean, it wasn't the most beautiful thing ever, but it, it, that functionality was there. Uh, 
and I didn't really have to put much up. I built an, I built one wall in the back and then I had to lead line it for x-ray. So I, I brought in my own x-ray machine. They didn't have an x-ray machine. Um, bought it refurbished from a local vendor that I just happened to run into at a, at a convention. Um, and I went through the SBA for, for, a, for a small business loan, which I personally had to guarantee. I, I had no other options at that point. Uh, the third bank I talked to actually funded us. I actually, I expected to have to talk to a lot, get a lot more no's before I got to that yes. Luckily it is my hometown. So I had some connections from high school that I could, that I could lean into. So that was an advantage as far as meeting the banker and them taking you seriously because they have to, they have to take a risk on you. They got nothing else. I didn't have real estate. I don't have collateral. I don't have a quit. I had nothing. It was just me telling them what I wanted to do. And Luckily, it's a smaller bank, and so they're going to be much more like local business focused than like a medium or large size bank that's just like if the numbers don't play out, they don't even take a meeting with you type of thing. Um, so, you know, all in all, we I mean, we we opened our office for more than I would like to admit. We So we used about one hundred and thirty five thousand in funds to get open roughly which I'd say is, is still pretty humble for any business opening, but I was really hoping to do it for less than a hundred. It just sort of one thing led to another. And maybe I, maybe I got wide eyes and bought too many things, you know, I, looking back, I think we could have done it for less. So you do your first practice, you don't really know what's essential and what's not, and you don't want to miss something essential. So then anytime it's, I'm not sure, well, then I better err on the side of getting it. Cause I don't know. Yeah. And after you've done it, you're like, oh, I could totally live without that. <laughs> so I don't need that anymore. So, yeah, that, that's I think that's a good path for people to know is that that's what I did too, SBA loan. It wasn't for that much, but I started a long time ago, so things were a little cheaper. Um, but same kind of thing. You you get the loan to do the to do um, any carpet, paint, walls, any stuff like you need to do like that. If you get an extra machine, most of them will lease it to you, so you don't have to pay out of that money for that. So that's a separate deal. And pretty easy way to set up a practice that way and you just got to buy your equipment and off you go um, really not, th- not not too bad as far as they go because having helped my wife set up a dental practice dental practices are assumed to be most of them expect to pay about a million to get all set up so 135 is nothing compared to that so um, we're still in a better yeah. way when you look at it when you look at it across industry like that it's I still find it mind-boggling how amazing of an opportunity the chiropractic profession is. I mean, and, you know, we're, we're here to talk about Gonstead, but just from a financial perspective, and we don't do modalities. I'm talking, we, I mean, all we do is adjust, but even from that standpoint, from an, from an overhead and then a, a potential profit standpoint, like it, I mean, it really is a great business to get into. Um, but we, we've even talked about what it would look like opening multiple practices so that we could get, you know, prevent these folks from driving from Baton Rouge and New Orleans and East Texas. They just, it's time to maybe get a, a student out of school and set them up in one of those bigger cities where we're not at, where we can't be in two places at once, but we have the template to tell them, Hey, you do this and you use our name and our brand and everything. And this is going to work. We already got like pockets of people set up for you, at least as a stimulus to get started, you know, help them and they'll refer. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's opportunities like that too. I was looking for an opportunity like that. I just didn't run into one. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I've got to go it alone. And that's what I did. Start out in the center. 
one other thing, um, besides the fact there's a good business opportunity, is my wife said to me one time, she said, I'm envious of you guys because she said, for me, I get a kid who's in really bad shape. I have to do a difficult surgery and all this other kind of stuff. And all I'm trying to do is patch them up and make them as good as I can. She said, you guys get the joy of changing somebody's life by making them whole again. And she said, I don't get to do that very often. And when I do, I realize how envious I am of that feeling. So I thought, you know, it's true. A lot of doctors work their whole lives and never really get that feeling of giving somebody back their life. And yet we get to the point we almost take it for granted because it happens so often. And we're like, yep, that's another one. Moving on to the next. And so it, that part is um, so it's not just the fact that we can make money. It's also just very fulfilling in general to be able to do to do that and help people. So, um, yeah, I do think it's a good profession as far as that goes. Uh, something that we talked about er- earlier, so we'll talk about it now here, um, was in regard to uh, the patient, especially when you're in a new place and nobody knows what you do, people bring with them their previous experience. And so we talked about the patient who says, can you just lay me down and do my neck face up the way the other guy did? Or can you do that thing where you stick your fist behind my back and crunch on it? And we get the people asking for that and how kind of the mentality and how you deal with um, with <laughs> Those kind, I'll call it a request. It's not usually a request. <laughs> that kind of request. <laughs> yeah, it's typically a demand, isn't it? <laughs> usually, yes. <laughs> we um we stress the educational process day one. As soon as you walk through our office, uh, a lot of people don't typically get like the tour of the office and a brief education. We we go through an extensive period of just education and diagnostics. Um, and, and in that process, we do talk about the difference between what maybe other chiropractors are doing and what we're doing in our office. Um, we, we teach what a subluxation is in what vectors that it, it will actually deviate from the norm. Um, why it's so important to, especially in the cervicals, just be pushing back to front. You know, uh, you really don't need rotation in the adjustment because depending on the hand that you're using, it takes most of that rotation out. We're really focused on setting it back onto its foundation onto that disc in order to relieve a lot of that nerve pressure. I think that's a huge piece of it, especially in our location that helps people understand, okay, yeah, maybe I, I don't need all of that you know, crack me head to toe like a glow stick kind of thing. Um, we, we always tell people why it is what we're doing works and why we avoid doing other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there was a, there was a few things that I would point out, but one of them um, with patients was the, the EXI and ilium and the fact that it's not addressed by most chiropractors. Because I would get a lot of patients that I could tell, for example, um, they had a PIEX ilium and another chiropractor adjusted them and they took the PI out, but they actually made the EX worse. So then they come in and they go, well, they adjusted me and it helped a little bit because it got rid of some of my symptoms, but now I have these other symptoms I didn't have. So I explained to them how pushing it up got rid of some of the symptoms, but pushing it further external created new ones. And now we're going to fix all of them. Then adjust that EX ilium and everything goes away. And it's like, see, told you it'll work. Uh, and so it was getting them to understand that vectorality, which is kind of a complex topic, but I always figured if they can understand that vectors matter, if they can just understand that, they're going to be way better at referring people to me than if they don't, because they're going to understand that difference. So I think that's good, 
good topic to hit on. Brennan and I always decided when uh, we're reviewing x-rays and we see somebody with like an ASEX and, and it's a primary EX and we're, we just get thrilled because we truly <laughs> believe we're the only ones that can actually address that listing correctly, you know? And we tell the patient that, like you said, Dr. Fowler, like, we'll we'll, we'll, uh, it's more of a case by case basis for something real technical like that, rather than the, just the general explanation. But like you see that EX ilium in any capacity, and it's obviously the, the problem side, I'll tell them, I'll be like, I am so glad you're in my office. And they'll kind of laugh like, yeah, me too. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm glad you're in my office. Because if you got somebody who would just roll this you know, million dollar roll, this is going to get worse. You see why? And sometimes I use a spine model or sometimes I'll just use my hands. But in that report of findings, you know, I use my hands as, as the ilia, the same way we would learn in like second quarter biomechanics. And I teach them that I'm like, so this one goes down and out and this one goes up and in, you see that? And so this side that this right side that's down and out, we have to bring it up and in for a correction. You see how, if I just put you on your side and roll you, it's going to make it worse. So on a case by case basis, I definitely try to call that shot before we, before we take it. I think that helps too. And I mean, that's not just with the ilium, but anywhere in the spine, you know, like you see how we can't work on this area at all because of this, that's going to make your neck real sore. We need to come all the way down here to this ninth thoracic to be able to fit, to be able to help this. And once you start doing it and they, they actually see the results with it, like you said earlier, I mean, they're, they're yours for life. They, they, they see that, they feel that it's, it's set in stone, you know? Yeah, and the x-rays make such educating them as well because I've had patients in the last couple of weeks where I'm like, I know that this is your problem. We both know this is your problem, but I can't fix this yet because i got to fix this other thing first. So if I fix this first, you can see what's going to happen. And they go, yeah, I see what's going to happen. And so now it's not like me running all over the place. They totally get it. And I tell them, as soon as we get this fixed, we'll be able to move to that and we'll know when and it'll be great. And then when it follows that pattern, they're like, how did you know? Well, it's biomechanics. <laughs> it's it's all part of the process. And, and then they understand how much more complicated it really is than just throwing people on a bench and making things go pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll tell, I'll tell them that from day one too. I'll say, uh, you know, it's, it's not about the pop. It's, it's about pushing on the right bone on the right time in the right direction. So sometimes I do that and I get this nice pop because it's really ready to accept that adjustment. That's the good ones. Other times we might be knocking on the door. I might have to knock on the door three, four times before it finally turns loose on that fifth visit and we really get it where we need to. I'm not going to just take you on that second or third visit and make something crack just to make some noise. I'll pop my fingers or something. That doesn't make a correction. That doesn't make any sense. If anything, that just complicates the picture. We're adding more things in there that don't need to be there. And I think if you explain that, people get it. Most people are coming in. They've sort of made a decision already. Uh, in their mind to to give this thing a shot. So they're going to go with whatever you say. If you're explaining it along the way, um, they'll, they'll trust you. I find that explanation even gives you more time to be able to get something fixed, especially in the beginning when you may not be fixing things as quickly as you do 10, 15, 20 years in practice. Those first five years, you're like, oh, I see the problem, but I I'm not good at that. Dang it. All right. Well, here goes nothing. And you almost have to use your words to explain to this patient, all right, well, this is what we're trying to achieve. We might not get this right out of the gate, but we're going to keep working on it until we get it. And they give you so much more grace to be able to uh, finally figure that out, you know, especially if it's something you're not as comfortable with correcting. Yeah, and the first couple of years, 
conversation with myself where I'd be, I'd be behind the patient and I would know what the subluxation is or maybe I wouldn't. And I would think to myself, um, if I had two weeks to figure this out, would I be any closer than I am right now? And I had to be honest with myself and be like, no, <laughs> I've made it as far as I can go. And if, if you give me all the time in the world. It's not getting any better. Now I'm just stalling and wasting time because I don't know what to do. And I finally had to start telling myself, well, then go. <laughs> Whatever you're going to do, just do it now and do it. Because after you're done waiting for two weeks, you're still going to have to do what you're going to do right now anyway. And that, yeah. to me, is part of the mental game I learned to play with myself. And I don't have to do that as much anymore. But um, but initially, that that kind of morphed into this other conversation where there was a period of time where I was kind of proficient. But then I would start to worry, well, what if I'm missing something? So then I would tell myself, okay, if you're missing something, what is it? Figure out what it is and fix it. And if two weeks isn't going to change it and you're still going to be sitting here wondering if you're missing anything, well, then adjust them, see if they get better. And if they don't get better, it'll help you to figure out what you might have been missing. And then when you learn from that, you won't miss it again. And so that process takes place for, I don't know, 5, 10, (laughs) 15 years. And then after that, it got to where it was like, oh, I've seen this before this up a dozen times before I got it right. So now I can't forget. So it's, a, it's part of that weird growing conversation that you have with yourself, uh, figuring those things out. You, you got to be very careful to remain honest with yourself and, and have the ability to self-assess because yeah, uh, I've fallen into traps without even realizing it before. It's like, I've been totally avoiding that C7 on this gal because she's got this this big old T1 to T3 hump and it's it just oh it's gonna be it's she's got a short neck I can't even get in there like I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna fix these thoracics and these lumbars and and we'll see what happens I, and I didn't even realize that I was playing that game with myself I think it's just human psychology to avoid things that maybe we are that are that are painful or stressful and really focus on our sweet spots. And um, I had to, it took maturity and experience a couple years down the road to realize like, okay, I got, I can't do that. Like this is, I've fallen into this trap before. I see this case. I need to go after this first, or I need to just keep, I need to be very honest about whether or not this is something that needs to be worked on. Or if I'm just telling myself a lie that I don't need to work on that and focus on an area that I know I can help this patient with just so that I can keep them, you know, coming to me type of thing. I think if there's anyone that's listening to this podcast, that's maybe like, you know, coming up on the end of school or fresh out of school and feels like they're not proficient in the Gonstead work and has considered other options, whether it's changing technique or, oh, I can't open a practice on my own. I need to go work for somebody for five, 10 years until I finally get this right. I need coaching. I need to be better. Uh, as much as an, an associateship under an accomplished doc can really push your skills along further. I've also heard situations from colleagues where they didn't feel like they got the instruction or the experience that they really needed. The real experience they got in that associateship was just working on people, you know? So coming out of school, like do not be afraid to open your own practice. Even if you feel like your hands are not proficient or your case management skills aren't there, it comes with, with, with repetition. The more patients you see, you get there and I think that we're a testament that you can absolutely make it in practice and do well, even when you're still learning to be proficient the first few years out of school. I'm nowhere where I want to be technique wise yet. I'm in my fifth year of practice. Uh, but 
definitely a lot better than I was three years ago, you know? Yeah. I've always said that your milestones in year five, you start doing things. You're like, I don't even know how I know how to do that. I don't even know why that's happening. It, things just start magically happening. It's like we were talking earlier about babies and how you wake up one day and the baby's doing things the baby didn't do. And you're like, where did the baby pick this up from? You do it too. <laughs> like you hit your five. Like I fixed that patient. And I don't even know how I did it. And like, you just start like getting in the flow of things. And so five is definitely one of the milestones where that starts to happen. Um, when you, because you're out there by yourself, you didn't, as far as your technique goes, you don't really have anybody who's helping you have each other now, but, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm willing to bet your best teacher so far has been your own mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. So I we started an email group um, with Parker Adams, and we kind of stayed plugged into that as much as possible. When there was a difficult case, we'd send it over with x-rays, case history. If we already started working on a couple things, we'd say what we worked on there. And I learned a lot of the basics on case management uh, through that, just following that email thread for four years. Um, so to me, it was, it was as if we had an associateship in that way in terms of learning the case management. So if you have like a remote mentor that you can start sending things off to and getting input on, you won't be missing out on that opportunity, opening up a practice on your own, even if you're in a desert like we are. Not a, not a literal desert like you, David, but a chiropractic desert, as we like to call it down here in, in Louisiana. But uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of how we filled in that gap. And then there was a lot of times where I just videotape myself adjusting family members or friends um, or even a patient from time to time if they were open to it. And they usually are. Um, and then send it to the group as well. So it's not just my main mentor, but it's all my colleagues as well. And some other some other more experienced people in that group as well that will, that'll offer some advice on, hey, you know, you do lateral to medial or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll kind of like pick apart your videos adjusting. So in that way, I feel like we were able to supplement some learning, but man, I really wish I had a, an experienced doc, like an hour down the road that I could go and work with a couple of, couple, you know, times a month, but that's just unfortunately not the case. I'd have to go five and a half hours to see Dave Waller in Dallas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No big deal. Five and a half. 11 hour round trip. Maybe my, maybe my chair will get a little bit better next week. Well, I, everybody's doubting, doubting what you're saying. Um, I have kind of a weird example. Um, it came up this last week. So there's a girl in our office who I've, I've been working with her person, like in person, helping her with her adjusting. And she's been struggling. We've kind of working on it. And then this last week, she told me that she listened to last week's episode five times. And then she, and then I watched her. She walked in the room with a patient and she set the C7. And came out, I was like, there it is. And I was like, see, it, you didn't even need me in person. You just needed to, it's almost like you just need intense focus on the thing you're trying to do. And that really what you have to learn how to focus that deeply. And it's almost to some degree, like if somebody's holding your hands and helping you, almost focus less. Like you have to figure out how to attain that deep, deep focus and just really know and feel what you're doing. And then things start coming together. So um, it, it, it does work out. It's just weird how we learn. It's not... I don't think we learn the way we think we learn or the way we like to learn. We just learn the way we learn. And it's, it's an odd thing because there's lots of people. I'm one of them who learned without anybody guiding us, but just kind of figured out on our own a lot of deep thought. And one of the things I added for them is I told them that right after I did that episode, I saw um, a video with Conan O'Brien and this um, martial arts guy. And the guy was showing the, um, the, 
Bruce Lee's one-inch punch. And so he was teaching Conan how to do the one-inch punch. And the first time Conan did it, he almost broke his hand. And the guy said, no, no. He said, the most important part is the torque. You have to torque. You can't do it straight. And I was like, yes, that's what we do. We do the one-inch punch from behind. <laughs> we move the bone with our finger. Like, that's basically what it is. And I was like, and what's the most important element? The torque. And I was like, this guy's got it. Bruce Lee was like, would have been the master adjuster because <laughs> he had it figured out. <laughs> most definitely. I, I listened to that podcast on Thursday morning, and I, it helped me in practice three days ago. <laughs> You're talking about you're talking, you're talking about the one with the cues and the triggers and stuff like that, right? Yeah, that was a good one. Because <laughs> that's how this podcast has always been. It helped me because it makes me think about it in minute details that I sometimes don't. And then after focusing on those details, that's why I said I think the focus is the most important part. I focus on those details, and then I immediately notice that I'm adjusting a little bit better, a little bit cleaner because I focused on on that stuff into the minutia, and that really that's where it's at. It's focusing on those minute details, every little detail. I think that focus is, is pretty tough in the beginning too, just because there are so many variables that are going through your head at one moment. Um, <clears throat> and it's almost like you are trying to be hyper aware of the situation at hand, but in the back of your mind, you're always wondering, you know, where's that next patient coming from? Where am I going to be marketing today? Am I going to get any call-ins? You know, things like that. So it's almost like the five years of experience Obviously, your hands get better, but you realize to block out a lot of the other noise as well and just focus on the patient in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think right, those are some of the most important skills, and they don't come naturally. They're hard to develop because it is so easy to get distracted. You think about it just driving down the road, how easy it is for some little motion to pull your attention away, and we're just very easily distracted people. And so it, it is hard to, to get that kind of focus and not be distracted by the patient's complaint or they're wincing and trying to pull away from you or I'm really nervous about that. Like all that stuff just adds another layer to the complication of trying to focus. Yeah, definitely. Now that you're, now that you're building up patients, are you guys seeing um, all, all populations? Because I, I, one of the things about building a practice has to do with a lot of times you don't see kids initially. Um, it's hard to get people to trust you with their kids when they're not even trusted with themselves. Um, so one of the things you can tell about a practice is when it starts seeing kids. Are, do you guys see kids and teenagers and people like that? Yeah, that's a big focus for us, <clears throat> actually. we I think it's more around the education. I mean, adjusting a kid, it's so little. It's, there's not much to it. I think most people think you're going to rip their head off. And so if you explain like, mm -hmm. I mean, in our patient education that everyone hears before they get started, we talk about how, what the birthing process creates the first subluxation. We educate every single person who comes in um, on day two about that. And so it, it does stimulate that referral process. But, you know, I talk about how, you know, if that upper cervical or that upper neck area uh, has any type of restriction or nerve irritation, then you're going to see things related, problems related to those nerves. So what do those nerves control? You know, things like digestion and breathing and has immune system uh, influence. And um, so you, you got sinuses and ear canals, you got kids with what problems? And I just look at them, it's almost a rhetorical question. So, I mean, these days, everybody's got the sinus or current ear infections, the ear tubes, the 
allergies. And so it, it leads itself to a conversation in the adjusting room, maybe the second or third visit if the kid's not the one starting care and it's the parent. Something will come up in the conversation, um, especially if they bring their kids to the appointment, which we're kind of like a family-friendly atmosphere. We got toys and stuff and pictures of kids all over the wall. So parents feel comfortable at least bringing their kids in. And so we can have a conversation like, oh, yeah, you know, you got, so how's he doing or something, even if I'm not seeing that kid yet. And I mean, it's, it's only a matter of time. I feel like before the, the light bulb goes off for the parent, like I need to get my kid checked. Most of the time that light bulb goes off on the second visit when we explain that process to people. And then they, that leads to a question that they'll ask, Hey, so you mentioned this, but my kid struggles with that. You think you could help with that? And I'll be straight up with them. Like, yeah, that's something that responds really well. Like me personally, in my practice, we've seen a lot of success with that, you know, with the sinuses or whatever, or with the breathing, or they'll ask about something a little bit more off the wall. And I'll say, you know, it's interesting. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty complex issue. I do think we can help it because of how it's related to the nervous system. But um, I think at the very least we should do a workup and see what, what shows up on your kid, you know, and talk about that. So I, I find that the education that we intentionally uh, inject into our, our new patient experience is why we're able to see a lot of kids uh, early on in practice when maybe they're, you know, like you mentioned, David, the challenges of your skills catching up and then getting kids later once the parents trust you. Uh, I think we kind of get that just from the education process. And then once they see that we're not ripping kids' heads off, they're like, oh, that's nothing. Did you even do anything? I'm like, yeah, for sure. See the scope reading changed or yeah, this moves a lot better. See, he's not like wincing away from me every time I poke that spot. That's a really good sign. Do you see this like red spot right here? Like there's two red dots right over your child's T7. Like I'm pretty sure they haven't hit puberty yet. There shouldn't be any acne there, you know, or this discoloration. I want you to watch that over the next couple of days and see if that disappears. And if you fixed it, it usually does. And so you, you can gain trust that way by showing them some type of objective criteria as well. We had an interesting one come in the other day too. Uh, and it kind of goes back to how Brennan was talking about calling your shots and how much um, kind of not, not only respect, but how much emphasis it, put, emphasis it puts on what we're doing and how we're getting this child well. But uh, mom is under care, dad's under care. And they just got their, their, one of their two sons under care because uh, he was having trouble with ear infections and sinus problems. The other child isn't a sickly guy. He never gets sick. It's just this youngest one. Um, and we had three adjustments with the youngest one. And now the older one gets sick more often. The youngest one is healthy as can be. And so mom's like, oh my God, okay, well, let's just get all, all of them under care because this is actually doing something. That was a good one. I enjoyed hearing about that one. <laughs> so I don't. Here's something I don't get to talk about very often, so I went to. So, Brennan, how does it feel now being a diplomat? How has that changed the way you go to work and how you think about things? Because so I know Holden intends to do it, but there is definitely something to like. We could talk about the process. It's brutal. Um, and I have to tell you, it was as brutal being one of the testers. Hold, I was with Holden. So it's as brutal being a tester as it is being on the other side. I've been on both sides, so it's not fun. Um, but after you get through it, how, what does that do for you going to the office knowing, I did it. I'm a diplomat. I, people kind of think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm a more reserved person naturally, more shy just, just by nature. 
any talking or outgoingness that you've noticed with me is is intentional energy that that is being spent it's not i'm not you know gaining any energy from that so like when it comes to posting on facebook and you know showing videos of myself adjusting on instagram and stuff like that you won't see it uh just because i'd prefer to just kind of i guess mind my business or whatever so in the first five years you're definitely like well am i am i really one of them like am i really like you know i say i'm a gunstead doc but do i really like hold weight against the the bigger college of people like would they approve of what i'm doing and that that thought is constantly in the back of your head like you know i'm i'm trying real hard to be this i don't think i'm there yet i'm definitely dedicated to get there and i can i'll be confident to say that one day but the diplomate process was like i guess uh a rite of passage, but uh, just an extra stripe on the belt to be able to go into practice the next week and say, like, I I am this. Like, I, I am qualified. I know what I'm doing. It was a boost of confidence for somebody like me who's naturally more shy and reserved. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure people would watch me and say I, I do good work. But to have that extra stamp of approval really made me feel more comfortable about what I was doing in the rooms, you know. Yeah, and we've done that. We we do it live for the uh, for the officers. But you see the same thing even there. They come in, they're in club for however many quarters, and then they take the test, and everybody's worried about failing it. And when they do pass it, you can see that people go, "Wow, maybe I do know something. Like maybe I'm getting somewhere." And I think the diplomat is like that times ten to know that you really did the hardest version of that test and managed to get through. And yet, it, it, it's tr- I, it's not tricky. It's it's tough. Like it's real world. Wouldn't you agree? Like it's real world, but it's, it's your hardest case, worst nightmare, real world. Yeah. Plus you got, you know, I'm, I'm five years removed from the academic portion of all of this. There's a lot of information and technicalities that you sort of purge from your brain. If you're, if you're a normal person and uh, you got 10 students from Sherman who have chapters memorized and just read three three chapters from the purple book yesterday, looking over, breathing over your shoulder while you're trying to set a fifth lumbar on the bench. And I'm like, I mean, that's like my bread and butter. Like, give me an L five. Like, I'll that's shoot. I'm confident with that all day, every day. But I was sweating at a, uh, with these with these with these students watching me do it. Uh, it's an extra level of uh, uh, it, it's it's a great experience because if you going through that and doing well. And like I said, getting that stamp of approval from, you know, your mentors and your colleagues, it just, it gave me that extra vote of confidence going into practice the next week. And I think that's carried over going forward. Like I'm definitely proud of that accomplishment. I didn't know if I'd ever do it. I was almost about to not take the officer test in school because I had heard how brutal it was. But uh, a buddy of mine who practices in Pennsylvania, not a Gonstead guy, but he was an officer at life. He was the one, you got to do it. You're going to learn so much. Even if you fail, you'll learn so much. I was like, oh, okay, well, I can't, I got to, well, I got to do it. Even if I fail, I'll learn so much that I can use in practice. And I passed that, that officer test at life university by the skin of my teeth. I failed two out of the nine sections. So if I'd have failed one more, I, I, I wouldn't have passed. I made a 80 average. You can't make less than an 80. So that those students, those officers grilled me, man, when I was in sixth quarter, and uh, Michael Tomasello was my my case management grader, and oh, I think I scored a forty six on case management. I felt like such an idiot walking out of that room. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
I saw that. Every time I do that test, I thought the best part about this test is that I'm not taking it. <laughs> part I like. <laughs> when I was an officer giving the test, I was like trying to like be the the like the mental health support for the because I knew other people were were grilling them. I was like, I, I got to be the nice one. I I'm the good cop here, you know. Yeah, I would sometimes see them in the hall. You're doing good. Just keep doing what you're doing. Because, yeah. you know, so as you think about the last one, they probably failed, but they're going to mess up the next one. But the diplomate test is no different. You have one where you come out of there going, I'm not sure. And you run the risk of having that one insecurity just wreck the whole rest of the test for you. Uh, so you do have to, it kind of gets you back into practice where it's like, you got to have a short memory. Maybe that was a bad patient encounter. Great. You got the rest of the day to get through. So um, you got to get back to it. And it, it really does simulate that pretty well. Um, but yeah, I, I was just, because I knew it helped me a lot to get through it. Most definitely, yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback off of that. It, not just the, the, the confidence, but um, going back and studying for it. And I, I didn't study much, to be honest. I mean, most of that stuff, you know it. You know, it's just a matter of brushing up on it. Um, but like reading back through through chapters and some of the parts that I felt like I maybe needed to, to brush up on, I learned a couple of things again. And I was like, oh, yeah, man, I totally... I totally forgot about that. Like I need to, I need to use that. And there, there's two or three topics that I, that I brought into the adjusting room the next week. Cause I had studied for that, that test, you know, even five years in, I, I was reminded of a couple of the basics that I had maybe lost sight of, you know, even grading extremely insightful. I thought, um, even though Dr. Fowler and I were sweating the whole time, uh, <laughs> But you you learn so much even just from watching other docs take a different but very similar approach to certain issues. You know, because we're all different in some way. But it's refreshing knowing that the Gonstead system stays true. Most people take same or similar approach as the rest of the Gonstead docs in the in in our profession. Um, it's just nice to know this works especially to see a lot of older docs taking that exam too. A lot of older docs wanting to do this for themselves and for them, for their patients. And um, seeing that they're all kind of similar. They all have the same approach majority of the time. Yeah, it, it's true. You see the subtleties and you can, like we talked about it when we did it, that you can tell who's got more experience and who has less by how they set up their adjustments and just their movements. But when it comes to the actual approach, time after time, it's the same. Um, and everybody knows the same things to do, even though they haven't discussed it. And that's one of the things that I like so much about this technique is that um, if you do the assessment correctly, you will all come to the same conclusion. So when you've got a diplomate test with people who are doing this, the assessment correctly, they all land in the same spot. And it's really cool to see it. And see, that's, that's, that's where we're all at. Yeah, I'll say uh, I got called out in the technique room for not using the strap, uh, and to, to admit to admit a fault here, uh, I had not been using the strap for many things above T1 in the chair, uh, and I, I didn't even know until I listened to your podcast last Thursday. You know, as much as it might be embarrassing to admit this, that the strap doesn't go over the sh the the shoulder, the most lateral part of the shoulder, but it should kind of be around the deltoid area. And then that made way more sense for like upper cervical adjusting. And I was like, man, I can't believe he, you know, that grader called me out for 
not using a strap for a C1 setup. Like, come on, man, uh, you know, <laughs> let it go. But no, I, I come back into, into practice the next week and then the, 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 the weeks following and I was using the strap on everything, every single adjustment where somebody is seated in a chair, I'm, I'm using a strap. And it's funny, I'm, when do we take it? Into April? We're in mid-July. We're coming up on the end of July recording this podcast. I still have patients who are coming in that are like, oh, what's this thing? Like, cause I've just, I've never, I'm doing it on everybody and I can't wait until the day where they're finally not, everybody has seen the strap at least once. People are still making comments about how I'm, you know, I'm making sure they, they don't go, they don't leave the room or something like that. Cause I'd never used the strap before. So even, even something like that, getting a little bit of feedback on a really small point like that. I mean, it's helped the stabilization a ton and we've seen better results in practice just from taking that test, you know? Yeah. I started, I started, more. I wasn't using as much. So I started, patients would say, you started strapping them up and I would just, it's a seatbelt. I was afraid you're going to run away on me. <laughs> and then they get it. <laughs> I, I haven't been calling it the strap. Because I feel like that might, it might be an aggressive term. I've been calling it the seatbelt too, because they're like, "Oh, that's something I'm used to. I wear a seatbelt every time I get in the car." You know, you got to be careful how you explain the strap to people who've and never that, seen that before. Even if they protest, I point to the one that's hooked to the knee chest, and I say, "Well, I could use that one to strap your head to the back." <laughs> and they're like, "No, no, this is fine. I'm good with it. <laughs> it works." Yeah. Sometimes you you, you hear those stories about stuff. Gunstead would do to to get the patients prepared for the adjustment. It's just like how did how do you explain what he was about to do there? Like, didn't he pull out the clippers a few times when he needed to when he needed to like get a skin on skin for a? It was a different time. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't imagine doing something like that. No, I couldn't either. Are those clippers running behind me? Won't mind me. Is that within your scope of practice? Wasn't it a single blade razor that he would shave somebody's yeah, occiput? occiput? Could you imagine walking out of that clinic with a gashed uh, uh, hairline behind the ear there? He whitewalled you to get that occiput fixed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for joining me. I appreciate it. This has been good. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this has been awesome. We enjoy it. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Kelly and Dr. Lynn for joining me today. I hope you learned something from their journey. I agree with Dr. Kelly that you should never be afraid to open on your own and learn as you go. John Maxwell says that successful people are always willing to bet on themselves. This whole podcast is all about giving you the confidence to bet on yourself. I hope you'll join us again next week. But until then, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.